Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast brought to you by ToughPigs.com. It's the podcast where we watch The Muppet Christmas Carol two minutes at a time and talk about it a lot. I'm your host, Anthony Strand. I'm your other host, Ryan Rowe. And joining us today, we have a very special guest. He was with us last time for Muppets Take Manhattan, and he's back again today. Guest, please introduce yourself. I am former Muppet writer, current uh, writer about Muppets, Craig Shaman. Wow, what a thrill! What a guest! Yeah. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're back, Craig. A professional. I'm glad Muppet I'm back nerd. too. That is true. All right, and today uh, Craig is joining us to talk about minutes 39 and 40 of the Muppet Christmas Carol. In these minutes, Scrooge leaves school and starts his apprenticeship. So we start with Sam the Eagle in mid-speech here telling Scrooge that life is a golden opportunity. Today you go forth into the real world and keep your nose to the grindstone. And uh, yeah, in case uh, you were thinking that this was a scene in search of a song. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's it, like knowing that there was supposed to be a song here, which I, I can't remember if we mentioned chairman of the board last week. We did some. Yeah. I think we I, were I think trying we to figure out where the song was supposed to go. Right. But this really feels like the spot. Yeah, for the song cue. It must have been. Yeah, I think there are like three or four possible music cues in just that little <laughs> passage. Uh, yeah. It's and it's a really building up to the song. It's a really fun song. And, uh, you know, anytime you have Sam able to perform um, a musical number is, uh, is a really fun thing. And it, it's, I think, part of the, my understanding is that it, it's a scheduling issue more than anything else in terms of why it didn't get done because they had uh, a limited amount of time uh, to shoot the movie. Um, And I think that they were, yeah, I I mean, it's, uh, you know, Brian is always proud of talking about it. He mentioned it uh, at the panel we did recently that um, this is probably the least expensive Muppet movie um, other if you adjust it for inflation, it's less expensive than the Muppet movie. The only reason the Muppet movie is less expensive to make is that it was done in 1979. Right. Um, Right. Sure. So I think that when you're scheduling out a film, you know, you're doing a musical number, it's going to take, you know, several days often in order to get the the proper presentation. Um, So I think, uh, you know, that and, and the Bunsen and Beaker, song i think were um were casualties of trying to keep the the music uh, keep the movie on uh schedule and possibly also a pacing issue in terms of keeping the running time um yeah that's that's kind of what i always figured yeah like like, they're they're beloved muppets but in the movie they're they're minor characters room in your heart i think makes sense i mean i do wish that they had at least filmed them so we could see them like if they had just a few more days. Well, here's shoot. the thing. I think that the that the fact that they weren't filmed uh, probably speaks more to the reason being scheduled, uh, you know, uh, schedule and time. and time. If that was not an issue, they would have shot them and then cut them from the film if they were slowing down the pacing. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I guess. I mean, this one, chairman of the board, which maybe we'll we'll splice in a few seconds over here in the podcast, but. Wait, wait, I let me, it, and here, listen to this. You can soar above the mediocre, soar above the rest. If you do your work with vigor, you'll be bigger than the best. 
be proud of your ambition. Being lazy is a curse. We want no empty pockets and we want no empty purse. Who work for a living? Love for your work. Don't think about vacations. You can overcome that quirk. Insist on being heard. A squeaky wheel can't be ignored. If you do what's right, if you prove you're bright, you'll be chairman of the board. So now that you've heard that, <laughs> um, I think it, it doesn't really add anything to the story, I guess. And we kind of already know what's... And I, I mean, obviously, because we watched the movie without it and it makes sense. But this one, it would have been nice to have. But for those of you um, listening at home or in your car, wherever you're listening to this fine podcast, <laughs> uh, the song is on the album. Yes. Yeah, it's great that they've recorded them at all. Yes. So shut off the podcast. Pull out your CD edition of the Muppet Christmas Carol soundtrack. Or that vinyl from, from a couple of years Last ago. Last year, yeah. Last year. Or the 8-track. <laughs> See, like, I, I trust your authority so no, much. They're, they're, like, <laughs> I know, I was trying to think, did they make an 8-track? 1992? No, but they, they, I okay. think that's probably okay. the next format, format that's going to make a resurgence among hipsters. And here's where I point out that They Might Be Giants released their uh, most recent album on 8-track, among many other formats. So, yeah, I Did think it's really? happening. Yeah. Wow. I don't know how many people have an 8-track player these days, but... That's that's not that important. Because <laughs> people, you know, people just buy it to to have. It's more know? of a collector's item, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that's like, yeah, I recently bought a cassette tape from an indie band that I love, Ookla the Mock. If people enjoy songs about comic books and Star Wars, they should... Check out Ukla the Mock. Yeah. Um, but I got it on tape and I don't have a tape player. I just <laughs> I wanted to put it in my office so that yeah. students would see put it. Put it on display. Know? Yeah. So I get it. But in this movie, they don't have tapes because they haven't been invented yet. <laughs> it's yet. 1843. Just sheet music. So back in the movie that actually does happen, uh, Gonzo and Rizzo are still trying to push the bus away from the wall. We saw them doing that last week. They're, they're trying not to get squished. And then Sam says to Scrooge, not to Gonzo and Rizzo, work hard and one day your life will be as solid as this very building. And then, uh-oh, the shelf falls over and busts and Muppets all spill out of it. The blocking of that shot is so perfect because the the gag happens in the background and out of focus. So we know it's happening. And screw, I mean, uh, Sam is just completely oblivious to it until this crash happens. But then he turns around and says, hmm, I've been meaning to fix that shelf. <laughs> so he did. So this shelf does crash in the reality of the movie. We've talked about Argonzo and Rizzo in the reality of this movie. And whether or not, Sam, like, in a minute, Gonzo's going to talk to Sam, address him as Sam. Yeah. But here, the headmaster sees that the shelf has fallen. And Scrooge says, yes, headmaster. <laughs> right. So... Both well, he is Charles Dickens. So, I mean, Gonzo is Charles Dickens, so he can go wherever he wants to. That's true. Right. No, I agree. I agree. We just, we've been talking back and forth about whether or not Gonzo and Rizzo are in the story. And this is, I think, the strongest evidence that they are. Because they are. The, the characters in the past react to them. Yeah. And we don't, they don't react to Scrooge and the ghost. We know they can't see them. Right. I think they are just like when the movie wants them to be or when it's funny for them to be. Right, yeah, just like just like uh, Rizzo going through the bars. It, yeah. it can only happen when it's funny, right? Like like the Roger Rabbit. <laughs> like Roger Rabbit, yes, exactly. Yeah, but then continuing on with the story, Sam tells Scrooge that he's apprenticed to a fine company in London to become a man of business, 
You will love business because it's the American way. That's what he says. Well, is it the American way, do you think? Well, uh, it's the British way. There Uh, it is. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, I thought we were going to have a conversation about like capitalism Capitalism. and economic (laughs) policy. There's, uh, you know, there's a little bit of uh, precedent for the whole issue of Sam's uh, American patriotism being churned in with, uh, you know, uh, mentions of other countries because uh, there was the line in uh, Muppet Vision 3D where it's a salute to all countries, but mostly America. Right. Right. This is actually just a few years after that. That's kind of like the Sam of the 90s, right? He's like, that's when he becomes Mr. Patriotism. Really? He's Mr. Culture on the Muppet Show. Yeah, I think that, uh, no, I mean, they, they brought in his, uh, they, I think it's tread, they treaded a little lightly on it on the Muppet Show because it was shot in the UK and I, they yeah. had to make yeah. a very universal show. Right. Um, but he was always Sam the American Eagle. Um, but I think uh, they had to do a show that was not an American show per se. It was a show of weirdos from all places that had to appeal to all um, markets where the show was sold. That makes sense. I do think this is a good, uh, like a little bit of all of those aspects of Sam. Like you believe that the guy who is so devoted to wholesome entertainment and sophisticated culture would also be a guy who really values hard work and business. Right. I do really enjoy the way Sam pauses and looks around. Like when Gonzo says, Sam, Sam doesn't look quite right at Gonzo. So maybe he, maybe Gonzo is invisible to him. I don't know, but he just kind of <laughs> looks around like, like, like where's this voice coming? He from? might be just hearing voices. Yeah. I mean, does, like does, the, does the kid react? Statues. Does the kid react to Gonzo? I don't, he's not in the shot. Oh, see, there we, you don't, go. we don't see him. Yeah. During that. And did you turn up the volume to see if you could hear what Gonzo was saying when he whispers to Sam? No. He no, he I just didn't. says, um, he just says, Sam, it's just that the story takes place in England. That's oh, all. Is that right? Yeah. That's actually what Aladdin said to Jasmine on the balcony, too. If you turn <laughs> your Good teenagers. That, not a lot of people. In that That's also what... Um, what uh, Michael and Pam said to each other when Michael was leaving the office. <laughs> yeah. And they both yeah. had taken off their microphones and that was, uh, that was what they were whispering. That's what it was. <laughs> Remarkable. Uh, but uh, speaking of lines that you only have here, Sam introduces Scrooge to the coachman. And uh, as the ghost is telling Scrooge, they have to move on. We hear Sam tell young Scrooge not to tip the driver. Let's talk a little bit about this kid. Um, I mean, is it just me or does he also look a little like Kevin Bishop from Muppet Treasure Island? Oh, Oh, I I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're, you're casting the Muppet, you know, movies. You always have to get a kid who looks like that. Is that uh, in England? When you're, yeah, maybe when you're shooting a literary adaptation in England, that's the type you look for. And now that you've mentioned it, both of those young men look not unlike Brian Henson. So maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. Yeah. You know, just like brown haired, long face, you know. But he does look like a a young Michael Caine, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, That that casting is pretty good, especially because they had to cast how many Scrooges total was it? Like five? 
think they're like four well, or five Scrooges. Yeah, because there's three, I think, in this sequence, right? There's the, the kid who's in the okay. desk first. And then I think there's just one in the middle, and then this guy. And then Raymond Coulter. Young adult, yeah. So as the young adult Scrooge. Yeah. Um, but you you don't know which of the because there's there's three actors credited as young Scrooge who aren't Raymond Coulter, and we couldn't figure out who which is which. You you don't know either, correct? You don't know this guy? Uh, I do not uh, offhand know. Okay. Because they're all just listed as young Scrooge, and none of them have that many credits. So it, it's a yeah. it's a mystery. If I do know that there, one of the, the uh, Scrooges. I don't know that, but I do know that one of the young Spocks in Star Trek Three was Vaj <laughs> Potenzo, who used to work at Henson in New York. Oh, that's exciting. Oh, is that right? Hi, Vaj, if you're listening. Oh, cool. <laughs> I yeah. hope he's listening. I also wanted to mention that um, at least one of the times, maybe both of the times that Sam says business, he he does a little uh, move reminiscent of the scooter fist. Mm. He, he does. Oh, yeah. his, he kind of swings yeah. his arm like that business I'm, I'm demonstrating but people know what it looks like yeah the sam wing if you will. the sam wing yes that's the new scooter fest How many yeah times so people um turn off the podcast go to the muppet movie and uh watch the uh, scene where uh like disguising a car so they, we, they won't be recognized and you can right. see the scooter arm pump uh, that's that, it uh, well, uh, ryan is speaking our, of our, our wait, wait give them a, a chance to come back Welcome back. <laughs> I hope you right, enjoyed the um, Muppet movie. So I, I, our friend Shane, who was actually on the podcast last week, made a YouTube compilation video of every instance he could find of the Scooter Fist. So after you've enjoyed the entire Muppet movie, which sure, watch it. Always a yeah. good idea. You can see all the other examples in that video, too. Yes, it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Then we see Scrooge and the Ghost of Christmas Past standing there. The school pulls into the background in some sort of vortex, and now they are standing out on the street. We have moved on to the next location. Yeah, it's it's not quite as elaborate as the previous instance of traveling through time, uh, where like the entire room filled with light, and then they flew over the rooftops. But it's still this must have been a fairly advanced uh, effect in 1992. Yeah, I think that terms. you know the other thing is once you establish the initial look of it, you don't have to do it to that extent than on the subsequent, um, right. you know, because like if you look at Star Trek, you know, when the first time you beam down to a planet, you're doing the whole effect and the, the, uh, whole optical, uh, overlay and stuff. And then by the end of the episode, you're just hearing them beam off, <laughs> you know, it's like, right. Well, right. yeah. So two to the... beam up, they, two to beam up, they walk out of frame and then you just <laughs> hear you it. Yeah. Um, so on the yeah. DVD commentary, Brian Henson, um, did confirm that I, I, and I haven't been looking for it. We're recording these out of order. I'll just let the audience know that, but I have not been looking for it every time, but he said that because it was so expensive to do these earlier effects later in the movie, when Scrooge travels through time, some of it just happens off screen and there's like lights and sound from off screen. And then there they are in a different time period. Yeah. Cause the audience uh, accepts that. Yeah. Did, you just get um, it by that point. Did you talk about the, the whole effect of, of that ghost yet in previous episodes? Yeah. When and, she, when she first appeared, we talked about it and how it was uh, done with oil and swirling under. Yeah. 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 And I won't mention That's it. Crazy. I mean, you can mention it. <laughs> no, I won't mention you it. Mention no. it. You no, can, right. not at all. I, no, you know, no. Well, here's, not happening. Here's a question: Do you think the ghost is is creepy or or like acceptably supernatural looking? I think it's pretty cool. I, I yeah. think that uh, it's uh, one of the things that I uh, you know it's, 
it's not particular to this these two minutes, but uh, Jerry Jewell did an amazing job adapting this film. Yeah. And what most of what you're seeing and hearing comes from the source material. You know, he's he's taking giant chunks, and I think the appearance of that ghost. Uh, from a design point of view, is influenced by the way that uh, the ghost was described in the book. And, um, you know, it's uh, that's one of the reasons that this movie is regarded by Dickens' historians as one of the most faithful to the original. Right, right. Yeah. It's a very popular movie in England. I mean, it Hmm. is far more popular uh, in England than it is here because they actually have – um, at, at Christmas time, they do a tour of the film accompanied by an orchestra, you know, playing the music live. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that would be great to see. Yeah, I'd love to uh, see that. Yeah, as we've been going through this, it's it's really, Anthony has been quoting passages of the book as they appear in the movie. And Jerry Jewell really did a great job. Anthony is holding up the book. There it is, the annotated Christmas <laughs> carol. Um not just that incorporating Dickens prose, but also write like either writing new prose or combining the existing prose with his own words to make it sound like Dickens. It's just really astonishing. Yeah. It, right. It's oh, one of uh, Jerry's masterpieces. Really. Yeah. yeah. It, it really is. And it's funny. Um, although, <laughs> right. Although having said that, I think the most pedestrian piece of narration in the entire movie is just about to happen. So, <laughs> Um, we'll get we'll get back to that in a second, but before we do, something much more important happens right here. Gonzo announces that they've arrived, but Gonzo and Rizzo are in their party clothes. They've, they've changed. Been wearing, they've been wearing the same clothes for this entire movie, and now they're in like matching outfits with a pinstripe coat, a tan vest, knickerbockers, <laughs> some sort of fancy fedora. They are just unexpectedly dressed for a party, and it's the greatest thing to ever happen. <laughs> You're so excited about it. I'm so excited about those party <laughs> clothes. I love them. Yeah. Uh, Gonzo and Rizzo have multiple costume changes in this film. And, uh, you know, it's a chance to shout out Polly Smith. And I don't know if you've mentioned Polly uh, before. Yeah, we, we have, but I was both doing it. Yeah, yeah, probably not she's, enough. She's one of the heroes um, of this movie. Yeah, and sure. one of the things that I was, when I was doing the research, we'll talk a little bit about the, the D23 Expo later, but when I was doing the research and she was one of our, our panelists, um, she only had uh, about six weeks to work on the costumes in New York before they had to ship out to, to England. Wow. You know, they had another, uh, you know, a shop set up in England and they, they continued work on it, but this was not a huge, uh, schedule, uh, for her. And then the film itself had originally started. Um, I think that the original talk was that it was going to be a TV movie hmm. and then it got changed into a, a feature film a little later. Um, so it, it, they did not have a lot of time to work on it. And Polly actually told the story that the first thing in order to buy her time, because they had hired a crew for her um, when she started up and to buy her time to do the design, she figured that all of the male characters would have to have a shirt. So she sort of <laughs> found vintage, uh, you know, period shirts and patterns in, in oh, various archives wow. and, wow. To, you know, photocopied them and handed them out to her crew and said, okay, start making these shirts. So while everyone was making the Muppets shirts for, you know, the <laughs> different characters, 
then it gave her time to, you know, look and research all of the different finished looks for everyone. And basically, so while they all the shirts were being made, she started designing for the individual characters. So it, it was a very uh, accelerated process. Yeah, that's amazing. It, Especially it, because every they, they all have to have period appropriate clothing. They can't just pull Muppet clothes out. Yeah, of, and you know, even the stuff around. Uh, for the humans, they were making stuff for uh, you know for for uh, they had a shop making stuff in England for the humans. Hmm. And one of the things that Polly uh, told me was that after you know all the Muppet costumes came back to to. Uh, Muppets, and they're still we still in existence. You know, they, we had we used them at the D twenty three Expo, uh, um, right? Yeah, yeah. And, well, and we saw uh, we saw some of them in Muppet Muppet Haunted Mansion recently. Yeah, too. yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, but the human costumes, the deal was that they went into stock at this costume house. Uh, it was a costume house called Cosprops, so they are rentable. And if you watch, you know, they you know uh, Polly had mentioned that uh, Scrooge's nightcap uh, pops up in a, a BBC uh, adaptation of a Dickens novel called Martin Chuzzlewit. Wow. And, uh, you know, then that same nightcap was worn by uh, Mr. Bennett in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's no like, you can, if, if you, <laughs> if you know what to watch for, you can see, the human it, costumes yeah. pop up on uh, other English uh, huh. uh, productions. Wow. So and these you. actors uh, got to wear Michael Caine's nightcap. Yeah. Probably they didn't <laughs> even know it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so thanks to Polly Smith for that info. Yeah. Wow. That is wonderful. Thank you uh, for sharing. Anthony, was Martin Chuzzlewit the book that you said has a scene where somebody goes to America and then everybody yeah, it says, has a like everybody hates yeah. America? Right, it has a whole passage about how boorish America is. Right. Yeah. And that's why it, it, US audiences turned on Dickens yeah. for a little while. Right. It, it sounds like a Muppet name, though. Martin Chuzzlewit. Sure sounds does, like, yeah. You know. 100%, yeah. Sounds um, like a guy that thing, Sattler and Waldorf knew in the in back. In S- it could S- be. S- <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, well, that's one thing that the Muppets and Dickens have in common is fun names. Ridiculous names. Indeed. For sure. But uh, so Gonzo and Rizzo, like I said, they're there. And Gonzo says, a moment later, Scrooge found himself standing on a city street, looking at a building he had not seen in years, which it sounds great when Dave Gold says it. Everything sounds great when Gonzo says it in this movie. But I do think that is a line that doesn't particularly sound Dickens-esque. It's very yeah. like well, it gets straight, the job straightforward done. movie narration. It does get the job done. Um, can I can I skip ahead to the old curiosity shop to to say what the line is in the book? Because sure, let's it's let's like, temporarily enter our old curiosity shop segment. So let's let's compare. A moment later, Scrooge found himself standing on a city street, looking at a building he had not seen in years. What Dickens wrote is, "They were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city, where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way." And all the strife and tumult of a real city were. And you know how much more expensive that shot is? <laughs> right, yeah. <that's... laughs> right, oh, I know. We don't yeah. need anybody passing and repassing. Right, but so it's one of those things where sometimes Jerry just needs, like you say, just needs to get the job done. And yeah. I get it. I'm not, I'm not saying like it all needs to be from the text, unabridged, you know. But <laughs> unabridged. It, is interesting. it is interesting to compare. 
uh, you know, hmm. obviously I've been doing it the whole movie, but it's, it's yeah. for me. So, uh, but where are they? What What is this building that he has not seen in years? The ghost, once again, prompts Scrooge, asking if he knows the place. And Scrooge does know it. His first job was here. And as we established, Michael Caine has won two Oscars. And neither of them were for this movie. But he absolutely deserves an Academy Award for the way he says, it's Fuzzy Wig's old rubber chicken factory. <laughs> because he's so excited about it. He's so yeah. happy to see it. Uh, so obviously in the book, Fezziwig does not run a rubber chicken factory. Too bad. That is that is Jerry Jewel's addition to the story. <laughs> and one of his best ones. Like it's so oh, fun yeah. that it's like we got Fozzie as, as Fezziwig. So sure, he makes rubber chickens. Is what, there a... does it say what the company does in the original? It let me because I, I don't think in, in my okay. canon which is Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. I don't, I don't think it's mentioned. I don't think they say it. Yeah, I don't think they ever do. It's just... Just business. You know, yeah, some, something to do with finance, presumably, right? As, although, as we've discussed yeah. previously on the podcast, they don't actually say what Scrooge and Marley do either. Well, I, no, think, like, I think at some point, if, if not in this, I mean, it, it, it's a counting house that Scrooge, right, they, which they is essentially a banking uh, establishment or a, a loan establishment. Right, but like a lot of people say money lender, and I've said money lender, and that phrase does not appear in the book, for example, you know? But does counting house appear? Let me see. I'm gonna double check right now while we're while we're on the thing. I got my I have two I have two. I have the annotated Christmas carol. He's just a, or, or maybe he's for, just in business. Let's see. Yeah, uh, maybe something where old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. Yes, the okay. door of Scrooge's counting. So yes, so the book does use the phrase counting house six times. So that is mm. established as what the business is. So there you go. So he does so, yeah. so his profession is whatever you do in a counting house. He counts, I guess. He counts just like just like the count. Uh, that counts. Count. Yeah. Like, I feel like that was an old computer game, a Sesame Street computer game back in the day. But that's why Jerry Nelson plays one of his old partners. Presumably, Jacob Marley <laughs> taught him how to count. That was his job, counting. Yeah. So does it does the business have a name specified in the book? Because here it's Fozzywig and Mom Limited, which is great. Let's see. I think it's just why it's old Fezziwig. It's Fezziwig alive again. Let's, the ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door and asked Scrooge if he knew it. No, it said Scrooge. Was I apprenticed here? Uh, and then they went in. It does not say the name of the business as far as I can oh, okay. tell. Just they're at the they're at the warehouse that's known to him. Old Fezziwig is at the desk. Right. Well, I just like that it's Fozziewig and Mom Limited because. But what's interesting is that there has to be some um, some sort of merchandise involved because the book does mention that it's a warehouse. Right. You're right. That's true. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What so and and you would you know you'd have to have you know you don't really have a warehouse if you're running a bank. Right. What well, wares are they housing? Exactly. Right. Maybe maybe they did have rubber chickens in the in the actual book. For all we know, that was wasn't Dickens mentioned. Intention. Yeah. Although I don't know about the availability of rubber in that period of time. Ooh. Right, right. They made wow, times chickens. were tough. Because uh, the the present is eighteen forty. So what's the eighteen forty three? Yeah. So the flashback would have to be as a young. Yeah, probably, we're talking eighteen eighteen ten ish. Oh wow! Yeah, Does that sound about right. Yeah. If we're if we're assuming Scrooge is Michael Caine's age, which is fifty eight. Yeah. You know, hmm. yeah, I don't think I had really thought about that. Like this is happening even further in the. Well, past. it's actually I, I mentioned that because 
uh, Polly actually pointed out, and and uh, it's pointed out, there's some interesting YouTube videos that talk about the costuming of Muppet Christmas Carol because the flashback uh, costumes of Belle and, and young Scrooge and, and Fozziewig are different in terms of style from the ones in the rest of the movie because it's a flashback to farther back in time. Oh, wow, I love that attention to detail. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's great. Huh. That's just like if this movie was set in 1992, then it would be 1960 or whatever in the in the flashback. Huh. You know. Yeah. Wow. So you'd, you'd still do. Yeah. And to it. us, it's just you know we watch it. It's like it's old timey, but right. you know, right. people right. who actually are well, paying attention are making sure that they actually look like the the periods. Right. Well, it, it, it's one of those things where the longer the more time passes, the harder it is to remember the difference between time period. Like you know, we just as we're recording this, it's November second, so Halloween season just ended so my mind as it often does turns to frankenstein and dracula <laughs> well frankenstein came out in 1818 and dracula came out in 1897 so those two books which i think we think of like dracula and frankenstein we think of them as contemporaries classes. yeah as contemporaries and they came out 79 years apart yeah wow you know? like, huh. So yeah, think of a book that's coming out now and a book that came out 79 years ago. A book that came out in in, in 1943, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot different. When I think of when I when I, when I think of books that are contemporaries with current literature, I think of King's Row. You know, <laughs> there, what's like, there's a phrase for that like collapse. It has the word collapse in it, like collapsing chronology or something like that. It's not, sure, that makes sense. Somebody yeah. will tell us in the comments. Right. Please do. Please do, gang. So they're at old uh, Fozziewig's old rubber chicken factory. And then Gonzo says another line of narration written by Jerry Jewell, outright Jerry Jewell line. Night was falling and the lamplighters were plying their trade. And this now we come to one of the most famous moments in this film because Gonzo also applies the lamplighters trade, but he doesn't light the lamp. (laughs) He lights something else. Am I supposed to say it? He lights the rat. Yeah, you're supposed to say it, Craig. He lights the rat. Yeah, he, he totally does it. He's <laughs> oh, you you give the, the fun stuff to the guest. I appreciate that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I think this is maybe the most famous, like, Muppet joke in the movie. Probably. probably. Yeah. Well, like also, the, the coming through the, the, the fence is probably, you know. That yeah, whole sequence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. right. But I feel like it's one of those things where just this is anecdotally, but you bring up Muppet Christmas Carol. And one of the things people get excited about is like the lamp, not the rat. You know, was it I'm wondering, was that moment? I, it's been a while since I've seen the trailer. Was it featured in the trailer? I that, don't I don't know, because because thank you for making me a part of this is in the trailer, which is kind uh, of a similar joke. Yeah. You know, Gonzo yeah, using the yeah. to wipe the window earlier. But I, I think part of it is just the like very panicked and excited way that Rizzo says it. You know, oh, it's, it's like, hilarious. Yeah, delivery of it. Well, also up. just the the Steve concept of is, of yeah, uh, nails it. of lighting a, a, a Muppet on fire <laughs> yes. is something that doesn't right. happen often. Uh, right, I mean, it happened in in Wilkins coffee commercials, uh, <laughs> right? In the old days, but. Uh, not not a lot since. You know, no, they, you're they right. They frown upon that on Sesame Street. I would imagine. Right. Yeah. But yeah, we talk about how fun it is to watch Muppets getting thrown across the room or thrown up in the air or, you know, even like run over. But 
Yeah, I guess setting on fire doesn't happen nearly as often. Yeah, um, you know, one of the things when you're you're writing for for young audiences, uh, they try and frown upon um, you know uh, anything that would be considered setting a bad example. We call it modeling. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, in a major feature film, they can, um, make some exceptions to that, but mm. I, I think it's still, this is still rated G, right? Yeah. It was. Yeah. So, uh, you know, apparently lighting, lighting, uh, sentient creatures on fire will still allow you to get a, a G rating. <laughs> in those days, it might be PG board. today. I don't know, but. Um, yeah, and I, I think like a lot of this stuff, though, it's so cartoonish and, and silly, like the way Rizzo is screaming. It, you don't really think that he's in pain. No, it's all right. it's all show business. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then, of course, it, it also doesn't last long, which is the right. other thing, because Gonzo drops him into a frozen barrel on the ground <laughs> to put out his tail plate. Well, Rizzo pops out for a second to say thank you, and then he he just dunks his head back under the water. His head again. back in, yeah. And that's gonna have an effect that we're gonna see next week. But. Yeah, I don't Wait, get to the... talk about that. No, I mean, but if you would it. like to, you can. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> Whoever's gonna I be here on what in... next week gets to talk about it. I'm not gonna talk about it. Okay. Right. It's not at all. I'm not gonna mention guess. anything. All right. We don't want to deprive you of it if you want no, to no, talk no, about no, it. No, 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 no. I'm okay. Okay, it's up to you. All right. <laughs> but uh, I do want to give a shout out to Tough Pig's co-owner, Joe Hennis, who loves anytime Muppets get wet. That's one of his mm. like pet delights of the Muppets. <laughs> so he uh, he's not here next week either. He'll be here later in the season. Spoiler, Joe Hennis is coming on the podcast. I don't <laughs> think that's a shock. Yes. To any of our listeners, but not next week, so he won't get to talk about about wet Rizzo. So, why don't you <laughs> that Rizzo? Uh, yeah, one of the things that you can tell about, uh, you know, the the size of a, the budget of a Muppet project is what you're allowed to do with the characters. Sure. Um, you know, because uh, I, I was usually doing projects where. I wasn't really allowed to do much to the characters except maybe you could, you know, put a pie in the face, mm. you know, because they would use uh, crazy foam, which is a uh, soapy uh, substance. Oh, where they can easily clean it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's, um, you know, I don't think I did a lot where characters got wet because that, you know, unless you had multiple puppets that would delay things. Mm. And if you had a show that had a, you know, like Fraggle Rock where they had a set of puppets that was just for getting wet, they had a, a set of the characters, uh, for huh. the, because they had the, the pond. I mean, they yeah. had the pool. So that they, makes sense. Um, but yeah, I didn't get to get a lot of characters wet over the years and I, mm. years and years oh. I worked, uh, too bad. Did you ever have a really good idea for a Muppet getting wet? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, we got some messy stuff happening um, when we did the Muppets kitchen, but it was, you know, it's like, it, if I can, we hit a character with a pie. Eh, no, but can we hit cat Cora with a pie? Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure it's easy that to was, clean her yeah, off. sure. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So, who do we see? Who comes out of the door? The host of the party, Fozzie Wig. He makes hey, Fozzie Wig. Here in, in minute 40, Fozzie Wig 
walks out the door and says, look, my lads, dusk has fallen and the lamplighters are, which we don't know what the lamplighters are yet. Because that's where what the are they? Off. The lamplighters are very handsome. The lamplighters yeah. are. I would guess money. that they're playing their trade. <laughs> playing their trade. Yes. Right? Yeah. But I don't get to but, talk about that. <laughs> but either way, this is classic Fozzie. When I think of Fozzie Bear, I think of look, my lads, dusk has fallen, <laughs> and the lamplighters are. He actually said that in the opening credits of season one. That was his joke in every episode. Yeah, yeah. Everybody Indeed. just waits for him to say it. Look, my la- okay. This is catchphrase. Um, <laughs> talking Fozzie no. doll. That's one of the phrases. But so we we've been slightly recording these out of order. We already recorded next week's episode. And so the ghost of Christmas past is me right now saying the same thing I said in that episode. You'll hear me say it next week, but I'm saying it again right now. Or are you um, the ghost of Christmas yet to come? I'm the. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm talking next week. I'm talking. So okay. I don't think keep I'm talking. Of, unless I'm unless I'm Pete in Mickey's Christmas. Character. <laughs> right. Hey, Ryan. You'll be the richest man in the cemetery. All right. So, no, I just, I love Fozzie Wake. I think it's such wonderful casting that Fozzie gets to play a guy who's a great host, the life of the party. Everyone's happy to see him. Like, I feel like 16 years of Fozzie Bear history up to that point pay off with this very brief role where he gets to play a popular and funny guy that everyone likes. Uh, I agree. If you're you're trying to get someone to not agree with you, I, I don't think that's going to happen. No, no, I wasn't. I was just wondering if you had. Any you want me to play da- devil's advocate? That's just no, the I, worst I casting. No, that, no, <laughs> there is the from the name on down. This is really uh, the name the is ideal, very fortuitous. The ideal casting uh, of uh, Fozzie for Fozzie Wig or yeah. Fezzy Wig. Fozzie Wig. For, you know. It's one of those things where, like. Nobody nobody gets to be in this movie that much, really, besides Gonzo and Rizzo, as far as Muppets, regu- you know, the, the classic Muppet gang. Michael right. Caine, not a character from the Muppet show, you know. <laughs> but given that, everyone's kind of a cameo. Fozzie's one of the best things about this movie, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. it's great to see him. We'll see if that happens again next time. In the next it's true. Movie. As the, the scene goes on, we might end up hating Fozzie. We might wish that oh, he no. weren't in oh, this movie no. at all. But... No, I meant in the next the next movie. Oh, the next movie. Yeah, because yeah, we'll see how that goes. Thing about that movie. <laughs> well, we'll see what we think when we get to we'll that We'll see movie. if that happens. Maybe I'll love it. Maybe Mr. Bimbo will be my new favorite guy. We'll see. Next time. Maybe the man in your favorite. I don't get to talk oh, about yes. that. So that's where... Hey, if you want to... You want to come Maybe. back and talk about Mr. Bimbo, Craig? Well, we'd love to. Have I can you, talk course. about other stuff. Yeah. Risk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but that actually brings us down to the end. So any other final thoughts you want to share about these two minutes or the movie in general uh, before we go, Craig? And we're going to we're going to talk about some other stuff before we leave. But thoughts specific to the movie. I, I mean, um, I'll just mention Jerry Jewell again. Just because I, I like talking about Jerry Jewell, all the Jerry's, Jerry Nelson, who we don't get sure. to to uh, experience much of in in this clip, although you'll get mm. to uh, see him as uh, as Emily Bear uh, yeah. in the next couple of minutes, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of doing a classic story, this is really a, you know I don't think you can do it better than this. This is a movie that uh, that ages very well it's 30 years old but 
you know, it doesn't really show signs of, of age. Um, it still works. It's, uh, and, and, um, works very well. And I think it sort of worked a little too well because the Muppets came back with another classic story. And I think that's in, in my view, um, was a little problematic to start getting into that, um, grind, so to speak, where the, the Muppets, I thought, should have gotten back to doing the broad genre parodies of the first three Muppet movies a little Yeah. Sooner. So I think that in some ways, as you know, this was a successful movie. It, it you know, did not cost a lot. I think it, it cost about 10 or $11 million. And even in the very short uh, Christmas window, of movies, it made like, you know, 45, $50 million in its initial release. And that's a very tenable position to be in. If you're making, you know, movies, um, you know, that's, that's not a bad, um, you know, return on the investment. Uh, so I think they figured, Hey, this worked, let's do this again. Right. And I think right. that then, um, you know, it just, the problem is that you have the Muppets playing, other characters too much, then you run the risk of people forgetting who they are at the heart of their own character who, and, you know, and you forget, you know, the audience forgets a little bit about who the Muppets really are. Yeah. And, and now you have, I guess, the shadow cast by these two movies where seemingly every day on social media, there are people saying, oh, the Muppets should do this classic story. They should do that classic story. They should do this, you know, a remake of this movie, that movie, this cartoon. I mean, that that went back for many years. When I was at, at Henson, there was, there was always a discussion, even before uh, Muppet uh, Christmas Carol was done, there were discussions about doing other existing properties. There was a hmm. brief discussion about a Muppet Guys and Dolls. Um, as a as a TV, okay, that movie. I would like, <laughs> and I think the the yeah, concept <laughs> was that that everything in this city, in the the Runyonesque city, would be alive, like the mailboxes could talk, you know, and and is it cast with the familiar Muppet characters? Mm -hmm. I, I, that because... was the that was the goal. It would be you know, it's going to be Piggy as Adelaide and and uh, huh. Kermit as Sky Masterson, and you right, saw but, you know, so wait, you you wait, were able Piggy to. Is Piggy as yeah. Adelaide and Kermit as Sky Masterson. They're not. They're not a couple together. Yeah, Kermit as, oh, not Kermit as, Sky, as, Nathan, as Nathan Detroit. Detroit. I'm sorry. Nathan. Yes, Nathan Detroit. So but you would have Floyd the as Sky the, Masterson and Janice. As well, I think <laughs> that there may have been a human as Sky Masterson. Oh, that oh, makes sense. I, sure. Yeah, I think that that would have been a human couple, and then that, that would make everyone sense, else. Yeah. And I think that the the idea was that you had Nathan and Adelaide in that same dynamic as Piggy and Kermit. That, that Piggy right. was wanting him to commit to a, a relationship mm, in the same yeah. way right. as Adelaide was 14 wanting. years. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. I didn't, yeah. and I no, apologize. You can edit really, to make I'm, it sound I'm, like I'm I knew what stuff, I was yeah. talking about. Um, so yeah, there, there were talks about that. That was, you know, those were discussions that were happening, I think before Muppet Christmas Carol. Huh? That's um, really interesting. And I've also heard you, make that suggestion before about they should just be doing genre parodies rather than specific parodies, which I think is a great idea. There's so many, especially now, like 
don't do a parody of Game of Thrones, just do a, a Muppet fantasy story. Yeah, I mean, and then if you look at the first three Muppet movies, that's basically what it is. Right. You know, the first Muppet, well, it's a road picture, and then the second one is a, you know, crime caper, uh, right. and the uh, third one is, uh, you know, Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right, but then, but then or, after Treasure Island, they did get back to that, and it was a big hit, and everyone loves it, and it's everyone's favorite Muppet movie. So, well, there were, you know, a lot of issues going on back then. Right. No, and, and, and I'll say this. I, I enjoy Muppets from Space quite a lot, actually. Like, listeners of this podcast will get sick of me defending Muppets from Space in a couple of years. Because I enjoy it. I think it's a fun movie. Oh, Ryan, did you have any other final thoughts before we close? I do, actually. Uh, about mostly Gonzo being a lamplighter. Uh, first of all, lamplighters. These were... Uh, uh, people who were employed in the days before there were electric streetlights all over cities, they would go around every evening lighting these lamps that either had uh, gas running through them or oil. Um, so there would be light. And, and you got night. to see the, them musically uh, presented in Mary Poppins Returns. Yes, exactly. With, That's uh, what Lynn I well, Miranda. Perhaps the, the yeah, most it, famous fictional lamplighter of recent years. I, I don't know. But uh, definitely not the same character as Bert the Chimney Sweep. But, no, that's uh, not, that movie's not the same movie as Mary Poppins. <laughs> right. But uh, anyway, despite, yeah. So, despite what every moment of it would have you believe. Right. Those, those were uh, lamplighters. And then in the morning, they would come around. I guess they had to wake up fairly early and uh, put out all the lamp lights that they had lit earlier. And um, it would have been much easier if they just turned them on with a switch. I don't know why they didn't do that. They were just waiting for somebody to invent that technology. Yeah. Uh, when we it, see. No, if I was like, if I had a time machine, I'd go back, just go to the lamplighter, say, you know, guys, you should really look into other line of work because a few years, nobody's going to need you. Right. You know, people are going to be able to flick a switch, light a little on, and they're going to be, oh, you're crazy. You're nuts. That would never <laughs> yeah. happen. And I'm like, yeah, fine. Yeah. Forget about it. And then you can go to the blacksmiths and tell them that horses will be replaced by cars. Yeah. And, and then I can stop off and get a copy of uh, Gray's Sports Almanac for the next 150 <laughs> right. years. Exactly. It's, it's, it's funny because I was going to say, listeners, if you enjoyed that, there's an album called Stan Freeberg Presents the United States of America. And it's all that kind of material. It is. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's great. I could sing the Rumpel Myers horseshoes jingle from that. If, if please, yes, you could. Please do. <laughs> now let's Maybe let's I'll... hear let's hear the actual one. Listen, Rumpelmeyer's horseshoes are the best you can use. What so proudly he's nailed onto all kinds of horses whose broad backs and bright eyes. As they smile in their stalls Give proof through the night That they wear Rumpelmeyer's <laughs> Yeah, um, when that album uh, came out in the 90s and I was listening to it all the time, my brother did not like that track because he thought it was like, not well, not sacrilegious, but what's the what's the patriotism equivalent of sacrilegious? He thought it was unpatriotic disrespectful yeah and i was like well, it's what's funny a funny song about horseshoes 
as long as we're getting into the weeds about Rumpelmeyer's horseshoes, <laughs> the, pre- the premise of which is Francis Scott Key was writing advertising jingles before he wrote the Star Spangled Banner right. and wrote a song about Rumpelmeyer's horseshoes to the same tune. That sketch strongly implies that he wrote the tune, which he did not. He wrote the words, but not the tune. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Are you telling great? me that Stan I... Freeberg's the United States of America is not historically accurate? It's not historically accurate. I can't believe it. Rump, Rump, I actually played Rumpelmeyer's Horseshoes because it, it's the like catchiest song one, right? Like it's it the is out of context. Yeah, I played that on my college radio show one time. <laughs> wow. So yeah, but yeah, next he'll be telling me that it's anachronistic for George Washington to have a boat with a picture of Popeye on it. <laughs> Wanted Donald Duck. Right. Anyway, uh, the other thing, when Gonzo does a little bit of narration in front of uh, the building, he is standing on a ladder that's propped up against the lamppost. He's on one of the upper rungs of the ladder. How did and they... ladders haven't been invented yet? <laughs> well, I don't, I'm not sure of the chronology of ladders, but where's Dave Goals? Because also Rizzo is standing on the lamppost. Where's Steve Wetmeyer? How did they do this? Do we think this was, and maybe Craig, you know something about this, but did do you think they composited that in in front of the background later? It is possible, or they just uh, took out um, it. You know, this would have been a movie before it was easy to remove uh, people. Right. Because um, it's really before the digital revolution. I'd have to take a closer look at, at the shot, but uh, it is quite possible it was just done in some sort of... Uh, tricky way and keeping, you know, characters, you know, keep, keep in mind that, um, you know, on certain characters, you don't always have to enter through the bottom of the character. Mm. So like if it was sure. a gonzo with a hole in the head rather than the, yeah. the bottom. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways to trick, the uh, trick the eye. So I, I don't recall exactly how it was done in this instance, but it was probably done in a very simple way. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think that nowadays it would have just, they would have just put on blues or green sleeves, Yeah, um, green right. sleeves in this case because of Gonzo, um, and, and eliminated mm-hmm. the puppeteer, but it, it wasn't easy to do in, in 1992. Yeah. We had a whole, uh, conversation trying to figure out how they did, uh, Marley and Marley when we see their whole bodies. Yeah, I mean it that sort of thing if you're getting rid of everybody and putting it against another background that's much easier. But if you're ha- right. if you're dealing with the the inter- having characters interacting with a physical set, that's harder to do. Yeah. Right, makes sense. But yeah. even you know, you're looking at you you could take puppeteers out and put it against another background. You know, if you look at what they did with Labyrinth with the fiery right which was before um, this yeah. even so yeah. they were figuring out ways to do it yeah still very impressive yep um oh okay i'm so sorry i i, I just looked at this gonzo picture that yeah you sorry i did i didn't want to interrupt the conversation but I, I took a screenshot of gonzo standing on the ladder yeah i think in this case what you're seeing is the uh scene behind him is not there so i think okay. what you're what you have is gonzo with Dave uh, in a green suit behind the ladder. And then all of that is being superimposed against the background. 
Right. Okay. And it goes by like you don't really think about it. So I think just the ladder and Rizzo, those are the only things that are actually there and everything else is in the background. Cool. Um, Yeah, that's all I had. All right. So, Craig, another thing we wanted to ask you about was you recently were heavily involved in a 30th anniversary panel for this movie at D23. Yes, I was. Any stories or thoughts you'd like to share with our audience about that? No, not really. (laughs) No, yes. Okay, thanks for coming. Thanks for being on the show. No, it was really quite special. Uh, I mean, um, the D23 people, for uh, listeners who are not aware, um, D23 is the official Disney fan club that uh, people can join and you get to um, go to exclusive events and things. And the D23 people I had worked with uh, before, uh, I pr- introduced a screening that they did of, of Muppet Sake Manhattan a few years ago um, in New York. And they reached out to me um, and asked if I would produce this uh, 30th anniversary event uh, at the D23 Expo. And I was happy to do it. And I, I uh, signed on. And um, what I wasn't really uh, prepared for was um, that they were willing to spend money (laughs) actually do something (laughs) uh, wonderfully special. Because what I'm used to doing um, panels at Museum of the Moving Image where, you know, we really don't have um, a lot of money to do things. Uh, You know, we, we have... We we ask uh, our our local guests to come locally and to um, and and they're wonderful to do it. Yeah, those but, events are great. It's just usually you and a guest talking yeah. on the stage. Yeah. So uh, they we we started out and also uh, you know the whole thing that usually with the panels that we do at Museum of the Moving Image and other places that I present panels are pretty much just panels and. D23 made it clear we want to have um, more than just a panel. We want to have a performance. We want to have the Muppets in attendance, which is usually, uh, you know, just cost prohibitive mm. for what we do. And uh, in this case, what was fortunate is that the, the performers were going to be at D23 anyway to promote the Muppets mayhem. Right. So it was, we didn't have to fly people out. They were being flown out and put up and the Muppet uh, Studios people were able to find funding to allow the performers to come to us. And then, you know, we were able to, uh, I don't know exactly, I was never told what my budget was. (laughs) Basically, it was basically, I would go to them and say, we would, I would love to go get, um, you know, uh, Chris Caswell, who did a lot of the music stuff on the movie. I'd love to get Chris to create a new um, um, music track that we can have uh, the guys pre-record to. And uh, they said, well, how much is it? And I said, this is what it would cost. And they said, yeah, sure. So, so that was go. like a, a an instrumental track that was made especially for that event. It was. Wow. It was um, made to... It, it, he patterned it on the um, the orchestrations of the original, but it, it was a new creation. And then, um, then we said, "Well, you know, um, we want to celebrate this song that was removed from the movie that is going back 
into the movie. Yeah, which uh, is really like that feels like the special thing about the 30th yeah. anniversary now. Uh, and then, you know, we said, well, you know, we want to get it performed. We don't, we're going to do a medley of the other songs at, at the end of the, of the panel. Um, but you know, maybe we can get someone else and the D23 people are saying, well, Jody Benson, little mermaid, she's going to be doing a bunch of stuff for us at, at D23. We can ask her if she'll do it. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, that'd be great. And then, yeah. you know, it's like, we need to, you know, this will cost this much to do that. And it's like, okay. And then they, yeah, sure. You know, and then, um, you know, it's like, well, you know, we have Paul Williams on the panel. We have uh, Brian Henson is going to come do the panel. Dave Goals is going to be there performing. He'll be on the panel. You know, let's get someone from behind the scenes. And I said, well, we can get Polly Smith to design the costumes, but she lives on the East Coast. You'd have to fly her in. And it'll cost this. And they say, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> wow. so, you know, we kept on doing that. So I don't know exactly what the budget was, um, but they kept, they, they didn't really say no. There were a couple of things when this all started, it was going to be um, Brett Goldstein was our, on our wish list to be the moderator and to. Sure. Cause of uh, that, cause of that stand up yeah. bit he does about the movie. And um, then, you know, he was very interested in doing it. Um, and then the uh, schedule, uh, and he was planning to come to LA for the Emmys, which were the Monday. Uh, we were doing this on a Saturday and okay. the Emmy was, were a on a Monday. And then we, uh, Ted Lasso was still shooting all that week before he was not going to be able to fly uh. to LA until Saturday or Sunday. So, uh, you know, that's how we ended up having Nina West mm -hmm. uh, do it. And if you have a chance to catch the clips on YouTube, Nina West did an amazing job. Yeah. Yeah. And, we'll put some of those in the show notes. Yeah. And, um, and then we had, uh, so we opened the, uh, the panel with a Muppets panel, sort of uh, with um, Gonzo, uh, Robin, Kermit and Miss Piggy. And um, what was wonderful for me about doing that was writing the panel with Jim Lewis. It was one of the last things that uh, he worked on. Right, because oh, wow. he's officially retired now. He's officially retired. And, you know, I worked with Jim for many years when I was at Henson. So we got to work together on this one last thing. And it was, it was a oh. lovely thing. And it went so well. You know, there's nothing that excites an audience more than seeing Muppets in person. Oh, yeah. As soon as they pop up, right. the audience just goes crazy. Yeah. And so we did. We started out with Gonzo. I had Gonzo playing Charles Dickens, introducing the panel. You know, he introduced himself as, as um, Charles Dickens, the 19th century's answer to Stan Lee. And, <laughs> um, and, and so we did this little self-contained panel with the characters that were about four minutes. And then we, we uh, showed the, the blooper reel from the movie while we repositioned. And then we brought out uh, Paul and, and Brian and, and Polly and Dave and did a, a very nice panel where Brian got into a lot of technical talk about why the song was cut uh, uh, and why why it hadn't been restored for many years. Right. And, you know, if you wanted to know about lines of resolution or how interpositives and internegatives <laughs> get made, you know, check out that panel. Um, and 
originally, here's a little bit of, of uh, when we were first starting to plan this panel, uh, Disney Plus had not yet planned to put the full version of the movie on their platform. Oh. Um, and then we were sort of saying, well, you know, Brian had heard that a 4K version existed. Yeah, I think and, that was announced uh, a year yeah, before that they yeah. had found and those so elements. Brian kind of thought that that was the reason that we were doing this whole panel. And we sure. were sort of yeah. gently urging uh, the Disney Plus people to to do it. And yeah. uh, they finally realized that this would be a great opportunity to publicize <laughs> yes. it. Uh, so we were able to, you know, make that announcement at the panel. Um and uh, that's when we brought out Jody Benson to sing the song, where she talked about uh, uh, part of your world almost getting cut from Little Mermaid. A very similar story, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, responsible in both uh, cases. Yeah. Uh, and then we finished up with a live perf- medley of uh, Muppet Christmas Carol songs with uh, the puppeteers performing uh, with... Uh, Nina West. And the way we did it, it was uh, all the puppeteers were visible. They were standing on the stage in front of Nina West. Uh, and uh, th- we had, what was amazing about the these panels in Disney X, uh, D23 Expo in particular is that it's a very big production. Mm-hmm. We were in one of the smaller uh, panel rooms and it was 3,800 people. So they had robot cameras. They had a director yeah. in the back. I was sitting, you know, they had teleprompters and I was sitting next to the person running uh, the graphics on the deck of, of the pictures that we were showing. Um, and I would cue them. I'd, I'd be, you know, sort of silently screaming at Brian, no, you're going out of order. You know, I, t- I send them the order that we're trying to take things because we need, we're following a deck here. Yeah. And, you know, you can't control these people. They're going to talk about what they want to talk about. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm covering that next, you know. But it was, uh, by what we are told, it was one of the most popular uh, panels of the whole D23 Expo. And it was a sold out, uh, you know, the the room was uh, was capped at, uh, and people were not able to get in. Oh, yeah. And there was so much coverage of it. Like, people just love that movie. And with yeah, it being the 30th yeah. anniversary, it was... Perfect. Yeah, and it was uh, it was my first time going to D twenty three Expo. It's mm. an insane thing. You know, you're talking about a facility that's large enough where they can have an airplane inside. You know, uh-huh. Walt's airplane was on display. Oh wow! Um, true. Yeah, and then wow, um, you know, this is one of those places where you have to try and uh, use an app to secure a time to have the privilege to go buy merchandise. Oh yeah, wow. and I'm I, I'm sitting there and like, oh, I'm not going to be able to get my merchandise and stuff. And then you know the people from Muppets are like, oh, we're going to take a field trip down to the uh, the Mickey's at Glendale booth. I'm like, we can do that? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, you know, sure, so you should be able like, to. Wow. Um, yeah, and uh, so it was a really um, it was a great experience, and I, I was happy to do it. And uh, you know, it was one of those things where you know you're, you're watching. Um, you're watching, you know, because I, I had been with the company when this movie was being done, right? And um, you know, I can't believe it was thirty years. Sure, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, so, I hope you uh, get to do more similar events like that at, at future I hope so. conventions. It's, it's kind and, of fun, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it was great. Was there any um, pushback from Disney about the puppeteers being visible? Like, no. Uh, actually, it was, uh, you know, they, the puppeteers being visible is less of a problem nowadays if okay. you can present it in a way where the audience can see, you know, see the puppets without the puppeteers essentially if we if you're in a situation where you have imag what they call imag image magnification um they're not that concerned about the puppets being visible so you can just look over at the screen and yes. just see the puppets the way you would it, if you um you can check out on youtube they did a panel uh, a small panel uh for muppets mayhem that was in just a a, a booth on the floor yeah, and you had the puppeteers, you know, basically sitting on the floor, having the puppets in front of directors' chair backs, mm -hmm. and everybody could see them. And even you know, Eric took Animal into the audience, running around. Yeah, and so they are not so quite so concerned about um, you know seeing the puppeteers. I, I just went That's to nice. see um, Brett McKenzie's concert in New York. Oh yeah, and Brett had uh, Kermit as a special guest, and Matt just rolled out. And, uh, you know, it was, it was not an issue. It, you know, it was an issue years ago. There was a, well, yeah, a, that's something that, that the fans kind of speculate about a lot. Like, oh, does Disney care? Is Disney going to let them show the puppeteers? But it's, well, it's the thing nice. is that, you know, when you look at it, it's not, you know, Disney is not a monolithic, you know, right. it's not like that's Kevin a good thing to remember. Cause... It's not a computer running things. So it's whoever is making decisions at a certain point. You know, yeah. it's, and regimes change and people in charge change. And the current people in charge don't see it as a problem to have the puppeteers visible. I think that it's, uh, you know, it, it just makes things a lot easier. You know, oh, when, we sure. did, when we did our Carnegie Hall concert, uh, we had to mask the puppeteers. Um, yeah, everyone was And part of it was, yeah. And when we did the New Zealand concert, we did not. Okay. Um, so mm. it just sort of instances different are, are different. And, you know, I think with um, Carnegie Hall, one of the issues that we did not have image magnification. So I think they mm. felt that having the character, having the puppeteers masked made it, it helped the audience focus on the puppets. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that, Craig. Uh, before we go, we do have three questions that we've been asking all of our guests this season. And the first one is, do you remember the first time you saw the movie? You were working at Hanson at the time, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I saw the movie before it was a movie. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I saw, uh, I was actually a part of the very first read through. Wow. Um, and it was the table read um, the day before the official table read. It was basically a rehearsal for the table read and not everybody was there yet. So they had Joe Henderson, who is now one of the Henson VPs. Back then he was a uh, receptionist. Hmm. Uh, he played Scrooge because Michael Caine hmm. was coming the next day. Okay. And I played a lot of the Muppets who hadn't arrived yet. You know, oh, the wow. had not arrived yet. So I did, I think I did Swedish Chef and I did, you know, some of the other uh, smaller characters. Okay. So we have to ask you, did you try to do the voices? Sure. You have to. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, Swedish chef. Yeah. Uh, so the next day, when they did the actual uh, table read, my um, my my uh, reward or my thank you for doing the 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 rehearsal was getting to come to the second floor conference room uh, in New York and sit around and and watch the actual table read mm. and see Michael Caine do it for the first time and wow um and uh so yeah i i it i saw it before it was a movie and then i saw one of the you know they i believe they showed us like the first 20 minutes when it was first assembled they had a screening mm. of like the first 20 minutes in new york we got to see that and then, you know, every time there was a, uh, a Henson movie, there would be a big screening in New York sure. for the people who worked on it uh, and, and the company. So I was able to see that. That rules. Uh, then the second question is, where do you rank it among the Muppet movies? I think it's a solid fourth. After the first three? I, I do. The first three yeah. are still sort of sentimental to me because I saw them. When I was, you know, the first one came out when I was, I guess, 13. And by the time the last one was out, I was graduating from high school. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. So those are, it's a pretty interesting formative uh, grouping, you know, in terms of what, when you're, what, when you're seeing these films for the first time. Yeah. So it, I, I think I still rank those three as as the first, second, third, but I think that Brian did a great job with this one. I think I would put this uh, Muppet Christmas Carol as fourth to me. Sure, understandable reasoning and a solid choice. And then finally, do you watch it every every Christmas season or thereabouts? Um, not religiously. Okay. If it's if I if I come across it, I will watch it. If I'm presenting it uh, at a screening, I will sit and watch <laughs> it. Um, it's a movie that I find uh, works really well on the big screen. I don't yeah, like to watch. I don't like to watch this one uh, on uh, on television or on video as much as the some of the other ones. I think that there's something about a, a movie that has sort of this emotional core. Um, experiencing it in an audience on a big screen is really the way to go. And I have the same thing on, um, on a lot of Christmas movies. Uh, I, I, uh, it's a wonderful life. I will see on, on television, but if I see it on the big screen, it makes me cry. It doesn't make me cry on television. Sure. Yeah. I've never, I don't, I've never seen it's a wonderful life on the big screen. I guess it does get screened around Christmas time. Yeah, they show it at the IFC Center here in New York. Okay, um, around Christmas time, they usually have um, um, Donna Reed's daughter come and introduce it. Huh. Oh wow! Wow, yeah. that's great. I've never oh. seen it in the theater either. I would love to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's something special about it. So I think I rank um, Muppet Christmas Carol along with that as as being something that's better experienced uh, on the big screen. Sure. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And we will be showing um, up at Christmas Carol in December. Um, if uh, you know, if anybody's in um, in the area of the Museum of the Moving Image, we will be showing um, up at Christmas Carol in December. Do you know? Do you have the date on that? I think it's December seventeenth. Um, okay. Let me just uh, 
Yeah, I think it's uh, December 17th, the uh, Museum of the Moving Image. And then there will be uh, usually a, uh, um, an encore on the following Friday, the 23rd. Oh, okay. But if you check the um, Museum of the Moving Images website, um, their calendar, you can get all, all of the information. Yes, New York area listeners should go do that. And even if you're not in New York, travel to New York for people that. People do, yes. People come from all over. All right, I'll be there. Okay. I'll be there. Listen, if <laughs> listeners are expecting to see me there, I won't be there. Go there and I, meet I would Anthony. love to. I would. I will leave two to, tickets for you at Will Call. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Oh, I got to go. Um, but that, that brings us down to the end of our Muppet Christmas Carol talk. But, Craig, before we go, where can our listeners find you and or your work? Well, they can find me at craigshaman.com. Uh, they can find my work at salmonfriendsbook.com, which is a book that I just wrote coincidentally about Salmon Friends, which was Jim Henson's first uh, television show. And uh, they can find that all around and at bear, bearmanormedia.com. It's a very, very good book. Uh, oh, what I've you. been saying to everybody is it's, it's not, a great book. Yeah, it's not just a great history of Jim Henson's early career. It's really a great history of early television. So if you're interested in that at all, it's it's Yeah, if you like novelty music, if you like yeah. uh, songs of the, the mid-century, mid-20th century, there's a lot of great stuff about that. Yeah. And That's I imagine cool. a lot of people who are listening to this podcast have the book by now, but... It's, you know, Christmas is coming up. It makes a lovely holiday gift. Yes. Buy one for each of your relatives and friends. (laughs) Everyone. Um, One of the things that I love about that book that I was most impressed by is there are so many things that we kind of know the end result of, you know, like that era of Salmon Friends in other books about the Muppets is kind of like, then Jim Henson made a show called Salmon Friends for six and a half years where he learned how to make TV. Now he's making TV, you know, like that's kind of how it's always been treated. And one of the things you do in the book is show us step-by-step how a lot of that stuff happened. Yeah. Like there's a scene where Jim and Jane Henson figure out how to like do the the monitor system for for puppets that like, I'd never thought about how that would have happened. It's just kind of like, yep, Jim Henson, the genius, invented monitors, you know, for, for puppeteering. Yeah, and it was it but, was interesting. You know, Jane sort of just explained that, oh, originally it was just to make sure we were on camera, hmm, you know, and right. then it got refined over time. Right. And and that's just one example. The book is full of stuff oh, like that. Yeah, right? it's, it's just so no cool idea. to get so much information about all of that. It's, yeah, it's just so well-researched and well-written. And one of yeah. the reasons, that's one of the reasons why it's like almost 600 pages. It's just, I, I wanted to... You know, um, I wanted to get as much information in there as possible. I wanted to, uh, you know, tell as much of the story behind the scenes as well as what was happening on camera. So that's why there's an episode guide. But I wanted to, you know, really celebrate the work of um, this kid. You know, Jim was a kid. Jim and Jane were both very young. And that's the other thing is like you talk about how he was living at home with his parents. (laughs) Yeah. Going to college. Like, like like several years of salmon friends. Yeah. And that's and, certainly something I never thought about. Yeah, and, and you get to sort of see how, you know, he's he's growing as an artist, but also, you know, oh well, they get married, they move out of the house, they buy nice cars, you know. Um it's uh 
you know, it's the, the, the really nice story of this couple. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to write this is that Jane never wanted to take credit for anything all of the, the years that I knew her. You know, she even told Brian J. Jones, you know, you're making too much of a big deal about me. And if she were alive today, she would, I think she'd be a little embarrassed and a little angry about what I'm doing. Oh. But um, yeah, no, she, I mean, it's, it is so clear that she deserves all that credit. Absolutely. She, I think, um, wanted to position Jim as the creator of the Muppets. She thought hmm. that it was a clearer story. And even when she acknowledged that she was involved, she would say, well, I helped. You know, Jim yeah. was the one, you know, and Jim did have the creative vision, but she did more than help. You know, she was a major partner, and I wanted to make sure that, that people are able to, to know about that. Yeah, yeah. Because even That's years crazy. later, um, you know, when I worked with Jane for, for many years on the Jim Henson legacy, when people wanted to honor her for her work, she would figure out a way to make it about Jim. Hmm. She said, well, present the award to Jim and I'll accept it. Okay. And this was like, you know, this was like the University of Maryland wanted to honor her. She was an alum. She had just as much of a, a right to be honored. Yeah. But she insisted, well, make it about Jim. Huh. Yeah, that's that's not a lot of people would, would do that. No. Given the opportunity. Right. And I had to really right. wrestle a lot of information out of her. You know, it took her a while to admit that she actually built some of the puppets. Hmm. Huh. Well, that's well, that, we could go on and on about this book. Everyone really should just read it. But another thing that struck me is there are puppet characters that you talk about who I'd never heard of before. Right. They're not part of like that one picture of the Sam and Friends cast mm -hmm. that everybody has seen. And there, there are ones that I don't even know about. I mean, they're, that pop up in a couple of those shots. We don't know what their names were because they might not have had names. Um, you know, early on, uh, Jane had explained to me once that they didn't really think of the early puppets as characters. They were just puppets and they were employed right. in doing, to do whatever they needed to do in a, a specific bit. And it was only right. over time right. that they developed characterizations. Hmm. Right. Well, and what's what's interesting is so the the cover is like you say, Ryan, that 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 one picture kind of of the of the Sam Prince game. Yeah. And we were looking at it. My son Miles is four and a half, and he, I, we, when I pulled the book out of the, you know out of the box, we were looking at it, and he goes, "Is that the oldest Muppet show?" Like my four year old. Uh, this is the kind of house he grew up grows. You know, that's the kind of house he lives <laughs> in. But he's like, "Is that the oldest Muppet show?" And I was like, "Yeah, buddy." It is the oldest Muppet show. It is. And, but he looks at it and he sees Mushmelon. And he's like, oh, there's a grouch in it. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's Mushmelon. <laughs> Pretty <know>? much. <laughs> yeah. And so that's like a, for a four-year-old. It's the, the funny thing about that photo is that there are really only two photos in color of Jim and the Muppet group of that uh -huh. era. It's that one on the front cover and then one of Jim and Jane on the back cover. And originally that, that photo with Jane was going to be on the front cover and the Henson company asked that we switch it because they wanted, they thought that, um, that Jim looked better when he was smiling and he's not oh. smiling on the, in the photo on the back. Interesting. So we're like, well, we'll put it on the back instead. And they were fine with that. Sure. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, it was a labor of love and I do have to acknowledge, uh, the kindness of the Jim Henson company for allowing me 
to do this book because it was it was a complex uh, thing, and then I had to also acknowledge. Uh, I, I want to acknowledge the kindness of the Disney Company because while Sam and Friends is still owned by Henson, Kermit, all the versions of Kermit are owned by Disney. Mm. So that's why there are Disney copyrights as well as Henson copyrights uh, listed in the, the credits. Right. Um, and, sure. and Sam and Friends is sort of in this frozen realm where nothing can be done with it unless both Henson and Disney agree. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, we're all very grateful that, that the book exists for many reasons. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons it exists is that, you know, you know, nobody's going to make a fortune on this. I think that, that, you know, Disney saw, (laughs) well, okay, this is a historical thing. It's going to be good to get it out there. They didn't make a big deal out of it. You know, they didn't, you know, they, they did not ask for uh, payment. Disney uh, Henson did not charge me for the, for the use of the, of the characters. Um, You know, they were very generous. Because I think they knew that this is, you know, a piece of history, a story yeah. that should be told, but no one's going to make a, a fortune doing this. Uh, yeah, I'll, maybe I'll, not. I, that, I hope mean, I do. But yeah, it's, we, it's yeah, a we niche hope you audience. Do too. But there, there is a lot of interest. Like anytime, like the Wilkins commercials uh, go viral on on YouTube or social media, people love seeing that old that old. But I don't, I hope that this uh, creates some awareness because. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always wanted to do is trying to get more of this material out to the to the fans. Um, you know, part of the problem is that the whole concept of packaged media is really not what it used to be. Right. Physical media. Right. Um, you know, but you know, we're we're always going to be having discussions about that. Um, the um, Henson people do want to do something. You know, we've been slowly getting a lot of these film elements uh, transferred to high definition. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, who knows? There might be. A, and cool. the other thing is that there are all of these great recordings that exist. You know, the, the book was possible because there are more than 400 audio recordings that Jim had made of the air checks of Salmon Friends. Mm. So we have yeah, audio. That's amazing. And it would be great to do some sort of um, album where we have – you know, the Freeberg recordings and, and the Spike Jones recordings with the Henson intros uh, from Sam and Friends. It would be oh, great yeah. to do something like that. Um, but the problem, you know, there aren't a lot of people doing those sort of compilation albums anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I think if, if this was happening, if we had the material that we have now, if we had that back in the 90s, you know, it would be easier to get it out. Into that would have been the time. Fans yeah. Hands. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. If you ever wanted to do a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo, I'm sure the fans would would rally for that. Well, I think that, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, it's not out of the the realm of possibility because there's a a Kickstarter now for a Dark Crystal um, graphic novel collection that Boom is doing, I think. Right. Um, And I was surprised to see that, but it's been very successful that they're, you know, they've they've funded it and and then some. Yeah, Um, it's a good way to make sure that the people who want it will... Get it. Although I, I think that the Salmon Friends uh, audience is a little more niche than the Dark Crystal uh, fan base. <laughs> I guess base. so. Uh, yeah. But I'm, I'm hoping yeah. that something more gets done. I think, um, you know, uh, I'm hoping um, 
to do a little bit more on the book side of things too. Mm. Uh, I can't really talk about anything else. Okay. uh, But um, that's intriguing. It was, uh, this was such a, I'm very proud of it. I'm really proud of the work. Should Um, be. Yeah. As you should. uh, And it was, uh, I I love doing it. And we loved reading it. And I also want to give a thanks because I'm sure he's listened to all of these episodes of yours. Uh, Frank Oz uh, was kind (laughs) enough to write the forward. So Frank, Frank, thank you so much. Um, yeah, yeah. I hope you, I hope you gave him a can of beans. <laughs> yes. I'm sure Frank Oz listens to every episode no. of this podcast. Uh, Frank yeah. was, <laughs> I had, I emailed Frank anticipating that it would, it would take me weeks and months to convince him to write the forward for this. Right. So I, when I wrote to him, I actually wrote all of what I thought he would respond with as well. I wrote a little dialogue. <laughs> All of his potential responses. And he really surprised me. So um, within like less than two hours, he wrote back and said that he would do it. And then <sighs> he responded to all of my planned responses. And eventually it's like, hey, I said I'd do it. Or, you know, enough already. You know? <laughs> nice. Um, That's funny. But he was, he was very nice. Now I'm wondering though, what, like, does Frank Oz listen to podcasts? What, what's his favorite podcast? Hmm. No, I think no, I wanna... podcast. Yeah, he he might. Have... He's got actual things to do. No I mean, interest. Yes, yeah. he has more important. Although things he's to do. although he's been on a few, not ours, but he has done podcasting. Oh, that's true. Yeah. He's very selective oh, he, about he the things he does these are. days. Yeah. yeah, rightly so. That's why I was so thrilled because I I don't think uh, Frank has written a lot of forwards uh, to books before. I, I think he's uh, yeah he's pretty selective about that the. the because he'd rather spend time doing his own thing and spend sure. time with family and stuff. Right. I, it's, I think it's just Jim Henson the works in this, right? That's what came to mind. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. If so that's, else. that's, you know, high company that you're in, mm-hmm. you know, um, but we should, you know, we really should probably end this podcast at some point. So Craig, if we thank must. you so much for being here. It's always a joy to talk to you. Yes. Thank you. I'm, Listeners, uh, you can- I'm thrilled. Don't I get a chance to say oh. something? Are you going to just, uh, you're going to go sure. into listeners? No, go ahead. No, no go ahead. <laughs> All I was going to say is thank you both for having me. You're welcome. Oh, our pleasure. Truly, truly our pleasure. It's always a blast to talk to you. Um, Don't I get to say I something more? Was... I, you're just going to go right on through? I, I mean, cutting me off? <laughs> what, what else did you want to say, Greg? I got nothing. Now you don't know what to do, Anthony. Uh, and our <laughs> listeners can always wait. I thought of something. Com on the internet, Facebook. <laughs> yes. No, it went away. I'm sorry. Uh, was it about Rumpelmeyer's okay. horseshoes? No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, uh, listeners can always find toughpigs.com on the internet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're all over the place. That's toughpigs.com spelled R U M P L E Meyer. <laughs> you can. Become a patron of ours at, on Patreon. You can email us at along at toughpigs.com to tell us what your favorite track was on Stan Freeberg Presents the United States of America. Please. You can follow. Volume one or two. Yeah, please do. Either. Yeah. Volume one or two. Either one. Because like for Ryan and I, we both heard them at the same time. I think. You probably did, right? I know. I, I, I bought the, I the two the, CD the set when it was set. new. Yeah. 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 
Um, so please, any any thoughts about that? Send them to Ryan on Twitter at me Ryan Rowe, and he will share them with me. I'm not on Twitter anymore, uh, and you can. But you can also find him on Letterboxd at Movies Are Neat, and you can find me on Letterboxd at Zeppo Marxist. Thank you to Morgan Davy, uh, uh, also a Stan Freeberg fan. Morgan Davy oh. for our logo. And uh, if you're so inclined, give us a positive review on iTunes and tell all of your friends to listen to this show and to listen to Stan Freeberg Presents the United States of America, Volumes 1 and 2. We'll be back next week for a presumably Freeberg-less episode of Moving Right Along. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>